Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us this week, you know him from the Deku original series So Far So Close and the film The Latent Image, also one of the hosts of the Return to Eerie Indiana podcast, it's Joshua Tonks. Josh, good evening. Good evening, guys. How are we doing? Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Very excited. A maligned choice from a much-loved director you've gone for here. Um, uh, my soul to take, your film choice. Yeah. Um, you had a couple of ideas. Why did this one make the list? It's just that bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can agree on that. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. And I think as we go through it, I'll sort of explain why. And I think, I, I don't know about you guys, but you just have those films that you know are objectively bad, but mm-hmm. you still love them anyway. Yeah, kind of like, I think that the one recently that was most on the nose of, like, the entire crux of our argument being, uh, yeah, it's terrible, but it's great, though, isn't it? It was uh, right at the beginning of the year, we had um, Zoe, as in Zobo with a shotgun Zoe on, and she chose uh, Repo the Genetic Opera, and basically any time we kind of jab that, she's like, yeah, of course, but I mean, come on. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> you know, I've not seen that. You know what? I'm not going to recommend it. No. Just that <laughs> no, 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 no. You can, you can make your own discoveries. But yeah, Josh. Uh, so you've seen uh, you've seen this a few times. When did you first come across it? I probably came across this around the time it came out on DVD. Okay. So maybe uh, sort of six months to a year after it came out. So it came out 2010. So I probably saw it around 2011. And I remember being quite excited because it was sort of a a double whammy. It was like this and Scream Four were sort of two Wes Craven movies that came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yes, great, we get two in one. Actually, yeah, like I was, I was going to cycle back to this at some point, but it is nice to talk to someone who shares my affection for Scream 4. Love mm. Scream 4. Love it. We're I, getting just that, like, I can't see him, but I know that we're getting side eyes from Andy right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm wincing. I'm making a wince face. <laughs> well, what's really funny is that I had, before I'd heard of your podcast and before you guys got in touch, I'd obviously been on like whatever podcast app and had a look for whatever scream for episodes there were so when you guys got in touch <laughs> i was halfway through your scream for episode like i looked and i was like oh i was listening to this no oh, way, no way. Oh, yeah no way. <laughs> oh that's pretty funny i was like yeah when you because when you said you wanted to do it i was just like oh man i really want to do it but we can't and we can't do it again <laughs> so i Which picked the like- closest thing that we could get that's so true actually yeah yeah absolutely um andy yeah so you said uh just before we hit record on this this is uh your second watch of this and the first in a long time it is indeed yeah i saw it around about the time it came out and uh i'm not gonna beat around the bush here i didn't particularly like it at the time there's been a lot of years in between and i don't think i like it anymore now than i did then (laughs) okay it's not soften the blow for you. No, not really. I think I feel like uh, in, in the interim, the more I watch this, and I'm a big Wes Craven fan, but the more I watch this one now, the more infuriating I find it. I think that I'm going to come up somewhere. I've like 
just like we'll get to it obviously but i think that i'm probably going to come in somewhere in the middle right i wouldn't choose it for this format but i also i'm not going to be I, like i don't feel nearly as negatively about it as you seem to andy this was the first watch for me tonight um it's one of those ones that's been kind of on my list for a while that i've been meaning to get to just purely in this kind of like iconic director blind spots you know sure where like you want to kind of watch things for the sake of completeness and i've always been kind of meaning to get around to this and i've kind of been, like i haven't been putting it off but i've always kind of been like i know that this isn't particularly well liked i mean i think it's it's rocking a sturdy 10 percent on rotten tomatoes yeah um, not good but <laughs> but um so it's nice that kind of like right i was like okay tonight i kind of like i have to sit down give this my undivided attention and yeah i don't know i think that i think that there's i think there's some there's some stuff to commend this but josh before we go any further um we do make everyone that comes on the show do one thing it will be chiefly for the benefit of anyone who is listening that hasn't watched my soul to take andy do we have 30 seconds on the clock we do okay so josh i'm gonna count you in in a sec um and we're gonna look for you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of my soul to take how'd you feel very good like uh like becky dark i'm gonna completely wing this uh because i felt like if she can do it i can do it that's like that's what like that's that's in the spirit of the game man absolutely Okay, That's a confidence that could go one of two ways here, Josh. I have to warn you. Like, uh, <laughs> 30 seconds disappears so fast, and there's a lot. To, oh, there's too much. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> right. I, I, like, I want to strike while Aaron's hot because you're sounding confident. Right, oh, here God. we go. Three, two, one, go. So the story takes place in the picturesque, picturesque town of Riverton. Um, there is a serial killer on the loose. Um, that serial killer is revealed to be Abel Plankoff, who has lots of different personalities, or does he? It might be multiple souls. There's a big old shootout. He gets killed, or does he? And we cut to 16 <laughs> years later. Uh, the kids that were, there were seven kids that were all born on the day he died, and they start getting killed one by one. And we have to Time. figure out where, ah, not so bad. close. Not bad. <laughs> what I do like is how much, like how much time you spent planting the seeds of mystery there. Right? <laughs> I love that. Did I, he? I stumbled over over picturesque and it was all like downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> Should have um, just gone, just kept it simple. <laughs> uh, I don't know, like 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 I would say, you know, like these have like we've had some unbelievably bad um, oh, attempts at this. Shocking. So um, yeah, so I wouldn't have beat yourself up. I would say that you're definitely <laughs> in the top half. Oh no, I'm gonna dwell. I'm gonna. D- I'm a dweller. I'm not. Oh cr- I'll, god. I'll probably yeah. sit in a dark corner and cry. <laughs> i want this to wake you from your dreams i would say that this film uh must break the record for the fastest a character says the title what, oh, because, because it's in the, voice in the opening voiceover that's <laughs> <laughs> like 80 seconds in including the title cards for the production companies oh yeah <laughs> so we are um in time indeterminate as you said in uh riverton which kind of feels like suburbia with a secret Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very pretty. And that's one of the things I like about the film is sort of how the the town looks. Uh, you've got all these kind of like gorgeous, I think it's Massachusetts that they film. So you've got all okay. these sort of like gorgeous houses, but you've also got the kind of like creepy railway bridge and yeah. you've got the, the lake with the mist on it and the woods. Like I, I like that uh, sort of element to it. You don't see enough of it, but it's there. <laughs> Agree. Yeah, actually. Because yeah, like a lot of the kind of, 
a lot of the look of the place, especially at night, is pretty cool. And you're right, yeah, they probably don't use that to their advantage, particularly. But um, Exposition News tells us that the Riverton Ripper is on the loose. See when they were talking about the knife, and it was like, oh, high-def security cameras. You can so see that we've, he's got the word vengeance monogrammed on his knife. I was really hoping that it was going to be like, oh, um, we're on shoot. We haven't caught his face, but um, high def CCTV has revealed that the words Abel Plankov are monogrammed on his knife. Police <laughs> are baffled. Like they zoom in past the face just to get to the knife. Like, guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was the the first moment that I I had a kind of flash of memory. I was like, and, because uh, this entire opening scene is absolutely bonkers. It is. It really, really is. Um, I actually, yeah, like, because I remember thinking I was like, because the first thing that we really see when we come into the house, kind of proper, is um, uh, this woman obviously who is sitting watching the news and getting kind of freaked out. She is quite heavily pregnant. Then her husband Abel is downstairs uh, building a doll's house. So his wife is Sarah, but yeah, he finds a bladed weapon underneath. Kind of, he's coming up from the basement, and I think he falls, doesn't he? And he finds yeah. this bladed knife. But like, then we like smash cut to him upstairs, uh, pacing the bathroom, talking to himself. And I remember thinking, I was like, ah, here comes the old standard tasteful depiction of mental illness. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's not ideal, and I think they try to get away with it by suggesting that these aren't multiple personalities, these are multiple souls. So we're sort of like leaning into a supernatural element, but we know what they're doing and it's not, it hasn't aged great. No, I think in fairness, I think that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dig it up too hard for that because I think that in general, the conversation about that has gotten quite a lot smarter quite quickly. Yeah. So I think that like, I think that it's, it's, this doesn't look great on the way back, but I think you're right. They do try to kind of pivot out of it by suggesting that it's a misdiagnosis and it's multiple souls. Well, there's a lot in this film, uh, the start in particular, and then most of the third act was reshot due to poor test screenings. So they had to go back and kind of punch it up a bit and fix a few things that didn't work. I wonder how much of what was changed was the kind of distasteful representation of mental illness and how much of the... Because that stuff really only does kind of crop up at those particular points, the kind of supernatural aspect of it. Yeah, and I think uh, thinking about how... I hate to be like, this is how I would have done it, but (laughs) there's a couple of moments where you get characters that actually pick up the skills of the person that's sort of inhabiting them, which is sort of a little bit Nightmare on Elm Street 4, mm-hmm. um, which I really like, uh, but they don't utilize that enough. So when we get to it, you know, the character of Bug sort of develops the skills of like um, like puppet making <laughs> because <laughs> the character of Jay, um, who dies at the beginning, uh, it sort of passes that on to him. And I much prefer that to that him sort of like flipping between voices. That, that doesn't work. That takes a really good actor and i don't think any of the actors in the film are quite up to that that level like james mcavoy pulls it off sure uh-huh. I'm, I'm not sure if the actors in this film quite manage that <laughs> I, I think that yeah you've probably got a point there and i think that like and we'll kind of like obviously we'll kind of as those things arise we're going to get to them but i think that you're right but also it's a lot to ask of people i think like it's a yeah. lot to ask for from a performance so i think that like um i would i would agree with you i would say that like um it probably doesn't necessarily land as effectively as they hope it might but it's a, yeah i was gonna say it's very hard to pull off i would say again it's just something that i think that you're right about but i wouldn't kind of come down like i wouldn't deduct any more than a half star for it you know no not at all okay. so abel realizing that something is wrong calls dr uh dr blake 
Yeah, the wonderful Harris Yulin here. Ah, okay. Quentin Travers in Buffy. <laughs> the judge in Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> I don't have one to add because, <laughs> because I'm very ignorant. Um... So Dr. Blake basically is like, he twigs what's going on. He tells Abel, he's like, get Sarah and your daughter Leah and go to your mom's house. Unfortunately, this advice is a little late because she's already dead. <laughs> I, quite, I, I quite like the, I quite like, it always sounds like a weird thing to say, but like, I, I like the dismemberment visual. Okay. Like, <laughs> I think it looks pretty good. Like, and I think that the reveal is quite good. Like the way he kind of like stands over her body and you kind of see it when he sees it. I think that's pretty good. That stuff's fine. Like I, there are some really cool effects moments in here, particularly when uh, Michonne from The Walking Dead gets her throat slashed like early on. The sputting wound on her neck's pretty great later. I think I just like, like the execution isn't necessarily that great. Uh, there's a lot of CGI blood in yes, this film, which is, is really kind of spoils it. But if you ignore that, and you look at sort of literally what happens in this opening scene, it like it doesn't stop. If anything, it's like you almost need to watch it a second or a third time to kind of get a grasp of who on earth has just been killed, who's still alive, who's not. People keep popping up and like jumping into frame. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> this guy, like he he kills multiple people here, but there's moments where he's like stabbing himself and. It's all very chaotic. In fact, going from what you just said, Josh, I actually did have to go back and rewatch the start again because I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. And I remember that from the last time I watched it. I was like, I, I didn't really understand that at all. But being able to go back and watch it now made it a little clearer. Yeah. This is the first time I've watched it where, and I've watched it a few times, maybe like seven or eight times uh, since it was released. This is the first time, because I was watching it and making notes, that I actually understood the whole plot. And it's all there, but it's all in dialogue. And it's so quick. So much information is told through dialogue so quickly that it like just rattles by and you you can't... like. I couldn't get it in my brain and I'd seen it a, like a few times. But there is actually a plot there. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I was kind of like, uh, it's it's kind of vindicating to hear you say that, to be honest, because I was having a hard time kind of getting all straight in my head. I think I've, I I've kind of got it now. But also, see, after Dr. Blake and uh, the police officer show up and everyone starts getting shot and stabbed, Yeah, Abel gets shot so many times in the sequence that I preemptively and wrongly wrote in my notes, he is shot dead three times. <laughs> <laughs> and, then had to, and then I had to correct him. That's so funny. I actually... I so. I wrote down what happens in oh, like do it. rapid fire. So it's like Plankov stabs self. He attacks uh, Leah or Leia. Leia, isn't it? So he stabs himself. He attacks Leia, but is shot. He fakes the cop into shooting him and then shoots his therapist. Mm -hmm. The cop isn't dead and shoots him. And then we cut to the ambulance. And then he's Plankov still not dead. He attacks the other cop and the ambulance crashes and explodes, but he's still not dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like off in the river somewhere and that's literally the first eight minutes of the film so <laughs> like officer frank grillo has been here for like a while he's seen a lot of people die in pretty quick succession he's seen this guy apparently come back from the dead multiple times and k kill yet more people but why the fuck isn't he tied down and strapped down in the ambulance like he's still allowed to kill more people in an ambulance it's ridiculous but you're right, on the en route to the hospital, uh, Abel jumps up again, does uh, slash the paramedics through? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, she um, a paramedic. Okay, cool. I think so. I mean, like, um, but 
you know, the person in the back of the ambulance. Um, um, the ambulance rolls, then explodes spectacularly. Abel cannot be found. And then, boom, chronology hop, 16 years into the future, to the day. You must have loved that, Mitch. You love sure a chronology did. hop. By the way, the name Abel Plankov is a bit silly. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it's, just, it's just silly. It's just, when the first time well, I heard it again tonight, I laughed. It is a silly name. I do like the religious sort of connotations of it. I, th- I believe Wes Craven was raised very religious. And so I get like, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen Deadly Blessing? Yes. Yes. By no, him? but go ahead. <laughs> so, so that is very much, basically this whole film feels like a bit of a greatest hits. That's a really positive way of looking at it, where he takes <laughs> elements from his own sort of catalog and puts it into this film. And I feel like the religious elements within this film just tie into um, Deadly Blessing a little bit for me. It's sort of, I, I noted that as I was going along, I was like, oh, okay. This so, is f- the first Wes Craven film actually written and directed by him since New Nightmare in 94. So like 16 years or something. Yeah, and I kind of wish that someone else had maybe helped him with the script a little bit. I'm going to agree <laughs> with you there. Yeah. Josh, you'll be shocked to hear about that. Uh... You've got Kevin Williamson right there. Like, on, <laughs> like, press one for Kevin Williamson. <laughs> Hi, mate. How you doing? So I've got this script. It's a bit dense. Do you think you could maybe put a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of like uh, sparkly dialogue in there, please. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that classic, that classic Williamson razzle dazzle. He one hundred percent had Kevin Williamson on speed dial by this point because there is no way that Kevin Williamson wasn't already working on Scream Four. A hundred percent. So it'd be like, dude, do you want to just have a quick look at this script for me? But you know, this does, in spite of all its flaws, feels like Wes Craven through and through to me. Okay, where we are in the future, I guess in the present. Not in the future. Um, is that we kind of we are at what is obviously kind of like this tradition, this annual thing where uh, the Riverton Seven, who mm-hmm. we meet at this point, who are all um, kids who were born the same day, the seven children who were born the same day that Abel Plankov died slash disappeared. So quick whip round here. We've got uh, Jerome. Yeah, he he's blind and uh, he's one of one of two black people in the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the other one happens to be his sister. Yes. Oh, and Toph from The Walking Dead. So. Yeah, oh, yeah. Go. Three. Great. Three. Well done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice job. Uh, also got Alex, uh, who is kind of the bog standard, not quite kind of like nerdy, but very socially awkward kind of guy. Who's going on to do much. great stuff since? Like, he was in First Cow and he was in uh, Overlord. He's got I really. I recognized him. Really high voice. Yes. Yeah. Really squeaky voice. Ah, uh-huh. we have Jay. Right. Okay. We don't really know much about Jay. Don't get used to Jay. I was going to say we get Jay, who we should not get attached to. But Jay might be the only Asian in the film. I think so. He makes. Yeah. He's the one that makes the puppets. So he designs the sort of the Ripper costume that looks all kind of like Swamp Man. Yes. Can I just uh-huh. say very quickly? I think that looks great. Yeah, I love the Ripper costume. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I, I, I think that I think that the actual visual of the Ripper is uh, pretty good. I think it's fine. Yeah, Bog, who is obviously kind of like our protagonist, as we'll come to learn. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. Penelope, the jittery religious one. Ugh. Sure. With her huge Piper Laurie from Carrie hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she looks like she's quantum leapt from a seventies horror movie, doesn't she? Didn't you think? I mean, I was like, yes, and I wish it stayed that big or got bigger the whole film, but it doesn't. 
<laughs> Could you imagine every scene? Like it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> We've got uh, Brittany, who we don't know much of, but we're basically just like she's she's literally introduced as the hot one. She's the popular ghetto, one of the popular ghettos. Yeah, and Brandon, who is basically just a bully. He's just a horrible cunt. He is deplorable. Disgusting. There is no moment that man is on the screen where I think, do you know what? I think he's misunderstood. No. No, agreed. I think that like every second he is on the screen tests your resolve not to reach into the screen and strangle him. Yeah, he's gross. So we get this kind of like this this tradition that we're in amongst here is the ghost of the Ripper like so needing to be driven back into the river. Yes, that's right. It is Bug's turn to uh, partake in this tradition, which he seems, like, kind of horrified by. I kind of get that. He's very, like, they they sort of call him an innocent. And I think he's, I think these characters are supposed to be, they're turning, the 16 years later, Josh, hello. They're turning 16. So (laughs) they are quite young. But it's funny in films, isn't it? That, like, 15 seems like, oh, you are so young. But 16 is like, oh, no, you're basically, like, a 27-year-old could play you. You know what mm. I mean? But I think the idea is that he's sort of quite stunted or he's been really protected. So he sort yeah. of like reacts sort of a bit younger than I think that the other kids would. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty fair reading of it. I think he, I mean, we, as the film goes on, we do learn that he's been quite insulated, I suppose, to kind of spare him the truth about who he is and uh, I, I guess his, the, the woes of his family. Uh, so yeah, that that kind of that kind of tracks that he would be perhaps a little more innocent and a little easier to frighten, perhaps than some of his some of his pals who are a bit looser and freer. And I mean, we do get evidence of that straight away because when the guy turns up in the Ripper costume, he kind of balls it a little bit and can't do the driving into the river that everybody else has presumably done in years gone by. Before he gets a chance to do it, the police intervene and everybody scatter. And I think that. Probably a fairly good indicator of what you're talking about, Josh, by the fact that he kind of like reacts younger and does have that kind of naivety is when they all scatter into the forest. I mean, don't get me wrong, in the fullness of time, he turns out to be right. But at the same time, it sounds preposterous when he's like, oh, I fucked it. So his spirit's back now. And everyone's like, you're not taking the series there, are you? And he's like, yeah. And this is what I quite like about the film that I wish they did a little bit more of, which is like, you've got this town that has this sort of dark history and these traditions and obviously Abel Plankoff looks nothing like the vision of the Ripper and you kind of get the impression that each year you know there's a different sort of design and you even get Jay's character sort of saying like oh in in my version of the story and so you get these different versions and all these kind of like it's sort of like this urban folklore and these legends about this character which I think is really cool and I quite like I quite like that it's it's used, but it's not used enough. Yeah, I agree. I think that the actual mythology of this is quite cool. And I think it yeah. probably is. And I mean, don't get me wrong, if there's one thing I hate, it's a second act of a film like this that is a lot of kids in libraries looking in gigantic books and rolls of microfilm trying to understand the history of something. But I actually wouldn't have minded it being explored a little bit more. I, I get that. that and I, I absolutely agree with Josh. I think that if the visual had just been a man walking out of the woods... It wouldn't have carried the same punch. <laughs> no. Just the janitor from school, like they gave him twenty dollars. Like, could you come and like could you come and be creepy? 
But yeah, we did say not to get too attached to Jay, and he is gone in this next sequence um, when he's heading back over the bridge. And he did just say moments earlier that um, he found that bridge creepy and didn't like walking over it with good reason. He gets his head smashed off it, and then he gets stabbed a bunch of times. I quite like this sequence. Mm. Yeah, it's good. I like, especially like when uh, you've got uh, like the kind of Ripper character just slowly following him, and then it just yeah runs full belt at him. Yeah, because that's really scary. Like you're walking, and like oh, it's just some guy. Okay, fine, I'll just play it cool and I'll walk. But then they start running after you. Terrifying. But then he's like, die, and uh, that that's the one thing I think lets the Ripper down is his yeah. voice, because yeah. you never see his face because as it will be revealed later on, um, you know, the Ripper isn't back. Uh, It (laughs) is just the puppet costume. So you never see his face. You don't see his mouth move. So it's all ADR. And it's sort of like a bad impression of like the scream voice, like ghost face or whatever. Yeah, I was Um, actually messaging Mitch during the the bit where there's a phone a phone call is it um, yeah who is it that gets the call is it Brittany gets Brandon. Brandon gets the phone call. Yeah. But I I was like to Mitch, this is just like a kind of, bad impression of the, the, the scream voice but the thing that gets me the most is the chuckling in a scary way or a I rubbish way i hate it <laughs> like, I can't, it it's it's bad when he's talking that's terrible when he's talking but he's constantly like and again like you say an adr just going <laughs> <laughs> just like stop it it's yeah I silly. Agree. it's it's a bit rubbish i I do agree in general. I think that like that the only thing that really lets the Ripper down as a as a villain is um, pretty much everything about when he tries to verbally communicate. Because I think his accompanying smack talk isn't that great either. Oh no, <laughs> really um, bad. But it's like, like, we, like which is a shame because, like you say, I think that I think that it mostly lands besides that. But yeah, so put one out for Jay. We hardly knew ye, literally. Yeah. But yeah, then uh, off to Bug in his room where uh, he is researching the California condor, a bird that eats death. There's a lot of bird well, chat in this. There is. So Wes Craven was an avid bird watcher. <laughs> um, and this really feels like an obvious love letter to that. And I like that the condor is sort of like, it's this gross outsider in the same way that Bug's character is supposed to be. Um, sure. And I really like how he relates to it. And that, you know, it's supposed to be, it eats dead things, yes, but it's supposed to inhabit uh, like it takes on the the souls of the things that it eats so it it might be a little ham-fisted but it completely relates to what is happening to bug's character in the film mm-hmm. and you see in this scene already without him knowing he's taken on the personality or the skills of jay's character so he's now building his own version of the california condor because before he was talking about oh it's just going to be like a little crappy sock puppet and then he's like, oh, actually, listening to this radio show, I'm going to create this really cool thing. Uh, so I quite like this scene. Yeah, same. I think that this is fine. What I do think is funny is see the, the radio show that they listen to about the Condor um, when the kind of expert is saying it's like it's got really novel ways to defend itself. And, yeah. the, and the presenter is like, um, oh, what are they? And he's like, well, I can't say them on the radio. I was like, Jesus Christ, how does this bird defend itself? <laughs> we'll find out later. <laughs> Classic half brick in a sock. <laughs> it's a big bag of doorknobs. <laughs> a little more of Penelope here as well. Just a very quick inkling, just enough to establish that she is um, on a scale of one to Jesus-y a ten. Mm. Yeah, yeah, not just uh, Piper Laurie here, but uh, in, in fact, quite close to Piper Laurie's character from Carrie. Yeah, I'd say so. A young mm. Piper Laurie. 
before the trauma. Also get a little bit more to Alex here, having what I would describe as a fractious relationship with his stepdad, uh, given that he socks him in the abdomen on his way to school. He's another pretty unlikable character straight out the gate. I think I agree with you on that. He's not... He's just always with the bad advice. <laughs> like, he's he's sort of leading Bug astray quite a bit. And we sort of hear from, from the character of Fang, who we'll meet later, uh, that, you know, maybe Alex is using Bug a little bit. And it's kind of like... I mean, I like it because it's quite real. Because a lot of the times, you, you know, you get friends at school that are kind of just friends because you go to school with them. Sure. Um, mm. It's almost like friends by sort of like proximity or whatever. Sure. Um, but yeah, he's 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 a bit of a bad influence, isn't he? Agreed. Yeah. He, he. But you're right. It's like also he he has that mixture of talking like he's an authority on everything and knowing almost nothing. Which yeah, definitely get, like gets them into some tight spots as well. Um, I found that like obviously we we get in the fullness of time what's going on here, but the phone call that we get with Brittany and Brandon here confused me immensely on the first go. <laughs> Oh, with the threes and the eights and stuff. Mm. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Which, um, like, I mean, we head straight to we head straight to school at this point anyway. But it's at this point that we understand that the numbers that Brittany is doling out on the phone to Brandon is the severity of the beating that everyone is getting the next morning. Yeah. No, this is coming down from Fang. And uh, the one thing that strikes me, you know, aside from the fact that I think we come to learn that she's maybe been held back a couple of years is. Where the fuck does she get this cachet that she has? She like rules the school with like this iron fist. She seems to have like virgin on employees and enforcers, and she's a very strange character. Particularly well, more so in school, less so at home when she's just an asshole teenager, like we probably all were. Uh, I can't get my head around the character of Fang at school at all. I have, I, I have, I've never seen like a like a bullying framework in a film be so. Like, like I've never seen anything like this before. I think it's actually like kind of interesting. It is, I, I yeah, it is interesting. And like a lot of the things in the film, it's probably not developed enough. But she's like, she's getting money from people, like that. That's how she can fund it. So I don't know where it sort of where it all began. If she was doing it when she was like really really young at school, but like <laughs> she, she's like twelve and like just like kicking off. But uh, yeah, she's she's a bizarre one. Yeah, but she's 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 built quite an empire here by by, by like see what appear. Like she honestly, people are absolutely petrified of her. Like they literally clear the corridors when she comes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't. I there's enough material in this film for a TV show, and I think if it was like a twelve part TV series, we'd maybe get a little bit more sort of understanding of what Fang's sort of like how this all came about. But we don't really, and to be honest it kind of doesn't really matter that much either because all of her friends and her lackeys and whatever, by the time we get to the third act, aren't even in it. And her character sort of shifts a little bit as well. She, You sort of do see her as the sort of, well, what her character is like at home. So yeah, we, it's it's an odd choice, but it is interesting. It's different. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's funny because I mean, like like what we see this kind of snapshot of this incredibly kind of like detailed and almost like really bureaucratic bullying framework that goes on at the school. But yeah, like it kind of fades in insignificance as it goes on when we learn a little bit more about how she, or how or kind of why she is the way she is, I guess. So I actually uh, there was a, there was a moment here that I thought was really funny, um, and it's intended to be like. Um, after the kind of like beatings happen and everyone clears away because obviously Penelope comes in and cuts this off and starts 
kind of repels Brandon with very kind of like strong Christian judgment. <laughs> um, but I love it when she turns around to Bug and she's obviously like trying to be kind of like a little bit of a harbinger for the fact that the Ripper's back and she's just like, he's coming and Bug goes, Jesus? <laughs> there are a handful of very, very nice one-liners in this film. Or at least I think so. Yeah, I think that like they're in what you're saying. I mean, like they're kind of they're buried quite deep in a lot of like very expository dialogue. Yeah, but they are there. <laughs> but uh, I think that potentially, like my f- my favorite scene in the film, I think is probably next. Um, Agreed, hundred uh, percent. Yes, with a uh, bug and Alex's presentation on the California Condor. Um, yeah, everything I like everything about this is absolute nonsense, but it's so fun. Yeah, it's pretty good. And here's my theory. My theory is that Wes Craven didn't want to make a horror film. He wanted to make like a weird coming of age teen movie that sort of had philosophical, religious overtones. I don't know. But this scene is probably directed with more theatrics and excitement and imagination than any single kill scene in the film. Like this is a slasher. A lot of the, the slashing is pretty dull. But this is really exciting. And it's probably the grossest scene as well. Yeah, uh-huh. It's a very slimy scene, this. Because, yeah, they do this presentation, but obviously he's built this incredible condor costume. Uh, when, and this whole scene kind of culminates with two different kinds of kind of like vomit slash slime being dumped on Brandon, which is hilarious mm. and really effective. And like you say, Josh, you're right. It's like in terms of like something that's being shot in a way that's like designed to excite, it definitely, it does it like no other scene in this film does. It's almost like, the scene of the film yeah it's kind of funny that like and obviously like because i did just finish watching this before we did this like i didn't really have like i feel like my reaction was still forming but it's only looking back now when i was like god that's streets ahead of the rest of this yeah it's almost making me think now and i'm just saying this on the fly and it might be the most ridiculous idea ever but imagine if the confrontation at the end was like the ripper in his costume and then bug in his like condor costume (laughs) if if he just ran back to the woods and dug up his costume because he knew this confrontation was coming uh, could, could you imagine the tooling up montage you'd get oh yeah like going out and getting like getting dressed for getting dressed for combat yeah, like in Elm Street, Nancy's like hanging up uh, sledgehammers and she's like putting tripwise together. And in this, Bugs like just filling up like the tank with slime, ready to like. I'm just, I'm just filled with an immense sadness that that's not how this plays out now. Because I do think, and we'll get to it when we get to it, but I do think the end of the film needs a location change needs a location change and it needs to go back to the lake or to the ambulance or to the bridge or to the woods or anywhere but that little tiny house that we're in for 45 minutes but we'll get there yeah it's, it's very abrupt it's very yes. it's a very long time to spend in that very dark house actually because it's what happens at the end is it becomes really quite uninteresting to look at yeah because you're in this all the sort of same place and it's not like not to com- um, you know I'm, in fact i am going to comp- compare it to a lot of uh, wes's other films uh, mm. but in scream like the last 45 minutes to an hour of that film takes place at Stu's house but it's like much bigger it's literally in the middle of nowhere so you can use everything around it but this feels like a little suburban house like big by like uk standards but like uh, for an american house it's pretty standard mm-hmm. so it, it feels very claustrophobic in a way that isn't effective i don't think yeah also Stu's house is brightly lit and it, it yeah it's more you get the welcoming of suburbia like that kind of come on in 
but there's just yeah. horrible things happening. Whereas this feels like it's kind of blue and spooky. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I t- t- totally agree. After this, Alex um, suggests that they plant Bug's phone in the girls' bathroom so they can eavesdrop on the conversation between Fang and Brittany. This is because he's of a mind that Brittany has a crush on Bug. Yes. So they do this, and I actually wrote down, I was like, of the gross privacy invasions the scene could go for, at least it's not a camera. Yes. I think like that's a, that's about as much as you can say in favour of that, but... um. Brittany mentions in the sequence, though, that Penelope is uh, is obsessed with Bug. Brittany says that she's not too keen on him, but you kind of feel like she's saying that to appease uh, Fang, who gets kind of stuck in to Bug's kind of checkered history, mental health-wise. Yeah, he's been in and out of institutions. He may even have killed people. What do we think about... Because this is obviously like... Because we've seen um, Bug acquire Jay's skills earlier on. Mm-hmm. But um, this is like... The first kind of like mirroring scene that happens here um, happens now, kind of like when while, while they're eavesdropping on this conversation or just after that. But Bug mirrors Alex's movements and everything he says and everything like as he's saying it, which I think is the first and only time that that happens. The rest of the time you hear him impersonating people and parroting back what they've said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting choice to happen when it happens and then to never happen again with any other character. Yeah, I I agree. I like it. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that it does like there is a lot of plot, and I said that like it kind of it does make sense. It's just really hard to follow. There are things like this that go mm, maybe this is the wrong place for this moment because he's only technically got one soul in him, yeah. which is Jay. So yeah. like, why is he? Why is shit happening now? You know what I mean? So it's really cool, but it's I think it's an oddly placed moment. I also don't feel like Alex was the right character for that to happen with. Wow, yeah. It, like To me, it should be, I don't know, it, sh- it should be a character who maybe has a stronger connection with one of the souls that's in him at the time. And, and like yeah. you say, there's only one soul in there just now. And there's never a moment where Jay mimics people or anything like that early on the film. So it, it, I, I just find it really jarring. And for it to take place in the school corridor is weird. I, I I could have done without this scene, period, if I'm honest, because it doesn't add anything. I like it in isolation as a moment, but I don't think it necessarily stands up to scrutiny. I would I think that I think that the answer is that more of this are none at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. We do get the cool moment with Jay in the mirror in the water though. Yeah. This is cool. Because that's done practically and it looks really good. Yeah, and that is great. Yeah, when he has the when he has the kind of vision when they're in the bathroom. Yeah. So he yeah. sees like the for for those listening uh he sees in the bathroom mirror the what is behind the mirror is like almost like the lake and he sees jay come swimming past the glass and it's not it's not like a weird cgi kind of moment it's actually like this dude underwater and it looks really good i think like yeah you know what i was about to blow right past that and it's absolutely worth a mention because it's uh because it's really effective and you're right the fact that it's practical does it an absolute world of good done far better than jason takes manhattan Oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the body of Jay has been discovered. Um, speaking of discoveries, also Brittany goes back into the bathroom to get her bag and finds Bug in the cubicle. Not a good look. Yeah, then nope. it's quite funny uh, when they both just scream at each other. Like, it's, it's quite funny. And it, I, I, again, it's another thing that bothers me about this film a little bit is I feel that the tone is muddled in a way that the rest of the it, like it, It's like it can't decide whether it's a comedy but it has way more comedy beats that work than horror beats that work. 
I, I feel like it struggles with its tone. And I don't know how much of that comes down to reshoots and how much of that was meddled with compared to, what I guess, what the film was originally or whether that stuff was added in later. I don't know. It just it makes me uneasy. Yeah, like you don't know what's going to happen next and not in a fun, ooh, this is an unpredictable story way. It's It's more like the subject matter that we're dealing with, which is like mental health and, you know, dead children and you know like it's it's really quite brutal and mean and the characters like you know like the character of brandon and like the character of alex aren't necessarily that nice like they're they're really sort of like sort of kind of gross grimy characters and then you have like moments of of humor which kind of like take you out of that and i feel like it, it either needed to it needed like one of one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, no one's going to look at this film and say, "Oh, this is a horror comedy," because no. I really don't think it is. It's it's much more a straight horror than that. But that's why I, I feel like the moments of comedy are a bit more jarring than I would ideally like them to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I agree. And I think that the thing about that is that it's not that isn't because the comedy moments don't work. You're right. It's just the way that it's kind of like they're unevenly distributed during some, like through something that is kind of otherwise quite heavy. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, yeah, like it's, it's the balance that's off rather than the moments that are played for laps, not landing. Because I think that I agree with Yandy. I think that like, I think that the film does its best work with that kind of thing, because there's a couple, because it did wrench a couple of genuine laps out of me at points where it's obviously designed to, like, I think a lot of the kind of incidental dialogue between Alex and bug and things like that. I think that, well, you said earlier as well, Josh, there's some good lines in there. But yeah, I think that what throws it is this kind of like arbitrary toggling between that and really kind of, yeah, like quite dense and quite miserable um, mythos. Yeah, and it's it's like some of it's quite vague because there's so much dialogue. Things get sort of like almost lost in translation. Like we're just talking about obviously Jay's body's been found. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the cops is saying something like he probably just got drunk and fell off you know off the bridge and like that's that and the what's the the main cops guy is it frank that's well it's frank grillo plays him i think his name is patterson pa- it's patterson pa- yeah pa- patterson okay so patterson says the kids in my 12 step and then move on and it's mm. like was that a joke to say that like no this is a really good kid he absolutely wouldn't be drinking or was jay ap- actually in his 12 step program for being an alcoholic what like and it just <laughs> blows right past it and i i'd like had to like double take i was like is that what is that real <laughs> yeah it's very difficult to tell how that's pitched isn't it so weird they also talk about about uh kind of speculating about the reason for jo- uh, jay's death and they're like oh we'll have to wait and see like we're, we can't really be sure what killed him was he was he murdered i don't really know we'll have to send them off for the like for his autopsy and stuff like that. But he has a massive stab wound in his stomach. You see it very, very clearly. <laughs> he does ask the he does ask the other uh, the other character, he does say he's like, are there any knife wounds? And she's like, nothing obvious. I was like, I think there's a fairly fucking obvious one right there, actually. And then there's that moment which kind of reminded me of uh like Freddy versus Jason, where is it Monica Keen is like Freddy died by fire, Jason by water. How can we use that? There's like, there's a moment where one of the char- one of the characters is like, "Well, we didn't, we know we didn't let them kill him last night, and one in six is seven, so, and it's sixteen years, and like they're just doing this like, like with this theory, like pulling it out their ass, just, just wild, desperate reaching." 
I wish that just because there were so many numbers in that moment, I wish that it had just smash cut to the two of them, you know, like writing equations on panes of glass, like in the social right? network. Just while, just while like <laughs> equations swirled around their heads, just on screen <laughs> graphics. <laughs> I think it's really. I, I actually a line that kind of like made me laugh in spite of myself around this point. Um, we learn kind of like Bugs in trouble. He's got um, a meeting with a principal, like for lurking around in the girls' bathroom, which is entirely fair enough. I think it's um, more to do with the incident in the classroom. That's true. It's more of the Condor thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, yeah, I guess he's not had a great day at the office really in general, has he? <laughs> no, and, and on his birthday. What a shame. That's true. I keep forgetting that this all unfolds in one day. It's- right? And it's just, and it's like seven kids' birthdays. Like, it's a, it's the ultimate birthday movie. <laughs> oh, man, there's a review for the poster. Right? Yeah, I, th- I, I kind of off the back of this, um, when Penelope goes and kind of like, they have another kind of awkward exchange. But I think it's really funny when she leaves and she says, if it gets too hot, turn on the prayer conditioning. But I like, yeah. laughed and then I was like, oh, come on <laughs> It's very Penelope to do that, though. Agree. Yeah. I see kind of like like Bug starts imitating the rest of the River in Seven here, um, kind of when he's sitting by himself. I love the fact that that is kind of like the way that they do that is we see him doing it, but it's intercut with what is effectively like previously on my soul to take. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, it like races through so much of the moments that we've already seen. Um, Penelope is off uh, praying with um, a girl that we understand that Brandon has got pregnant. It's a baby, not a bomb, is not constructive advice. <laughs> not at all. I think that the uh, the kind of speed with which Penelope is kind of just bumped off here as class, and it's a and it's like a, it's a good throat slash, and also later when we discover her body again, I think that's a really good visual too. Yes, I like the body being discovered. I don't like the CGI blood no. when she gets killed and it's like pooling into the pool. Truth. Um, but I, you know, I, I, and it would, you know, I love a chase scene. It would have been cool to get a little chase scene around the boiler room. But yeah, it's it's a nice, it's a nice moment. I actually think I, it's probably the most violent murder. Like obviously the stuff at the start's incredibly violent. But like he, I mean, he really slits her throat and then he stabs the shit out of her. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty full-on, isn't it? Meanwhile, we learn that Bug is going to get sent away to get tested psychologically in the morning. Uh, his chief crime being uh, showmanship and an odd taste in birds. Yeah. <laughs> and like, can, can, can principals do that? Well, he seems to think that it's uh, very much in his lane for her, that, right. that he can just send children to Boston to have their minds probed. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, he's very, um, he's very confident that that's within his jurisdiction. Yeah. Certainly, some rapid fire deaths here, though. I think that kind of like, I, I think you kind of, you get this very marked feel that everything is shifting gears. I think all this happens annoyingly briskly for me. None of it really gets a chance to breathe. It does, especially because it's in the day as well. You know, <clears throat> you're going to kill three of your seven characters in the day. Yeah. You've got to make them good moments, and. Yeah what we kind of get is sort of a bit of a gross, like, attempted sexual assault that leads into oh, Jesus. quite oh. underwhelming deaths. So, uh, and and they're very quick, very quick. So, uh, I, yeah, I wanted more. Yeah, they're, they're annoyingly throwaway, ultimately. Even, like, we all want a massive payoff for Brandon being murdered, and it's just nothing, it's kind of damp squib. Yeah. So yeah, because like in kind of very rapid succession, we lose Penelope, Brandon, and Brittany here, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that like they, like these are kind of like of the seven, they're the ones that we've spent the most time with and the ones that were kind of like outside of kind of bug, but we're like we're pretty well acquainted with them all and it they do kind of really blow through it and it genuinely has the feel of them getting to that point in the writing process and realizing that seven is an awful lot of people and then just realizing that they have to just take a chunk of them out in the most expedient way possible because they're all gone in the measure of about five or eight minutes or so. Because it's so silly because they absolutely have enough time to kill off these characters sort of a little bit sort of more spread out because there's a full 45 minutes left and it all takes place in Bug's house. So you could have absolutely like shift gears a little bit, gone to different places and had, you know, let's go to the church they're constantly talking about going to. Which I have no idea why they were going there. That's the one thing I was like, why is everyone going to the church? What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's see, Brandon get killed in his bedroom, Jim. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, of, like, yeah. The, the, there are a lot. Of, there's a lot better ways that this could have happened. And you're right, actually, Josh. You're 100 right that the frustrating thing is that they do. They have the time to do it and just choose not to. And it is all in service of this kind of like overlong kind of final standoff. Because I, when I was taking notes for this, so um, I was typing my notes up for this, and normally I come in at like about like two and a bit sides, and we were getting to like yeah, there's like 45 minutes left at this point. And I was at like two pages and I was like, Jesus, my notes for this are going to be really, really long. And then the last, like, yeah, the third act is like a burn through and maybe about seven or eight lines. Yeah, because yeah. it basically becomes a kind of rehash of all the little chases that we've seen in Scream, where Ghostface chases someone around a little bit. They hit him over the head with a vase or they push him down the stairs. Basically, he gets his ass kicked a little bit. And then we get to the final kind of reveal and standoff. But that that whole bit, we've we've seen it done a million times and we've seen it done better by the same director. Yeah, I, I could have done with a trimming of that, like we said earlier, running around in the, the blue light. Or even like take a little bit of that and then put it in like a, a Brandon scene or a Britney scene. Absolutely. And yeah. you know what I mean? Rather than just like, let's attack Bug for like five minutes solid. And to, if I'm honest, I do like it. Because I love, this is where I think, you know, Craven is in his element because he directs sort of scrappy action that involves props and chairs and tripping and for all of that stuff really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do quite enjoy it, but I know what you mean. It's like all in one section and it could have been spread out, I think. It's like they, they, they all literally die within like 10 feet of each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of all blown through. But like, I think that... The the kind of last piece of plot, I guess, that kind of sets into motion the events of the third act is this kind of like very revelation heavy scene that we have when Bug goes home and we find out that Fang is his sister. Yeah. I want to point out at this point that like when I'm watching along, especially when it's like time sensitive like it was tonight, Josh, I often have the Wikipedia plot synopsis open as well. Right. Just to kind of like keep my ducks in a row. And the Wikipedia plot synopsis says it is revealed that Fang is his sister and goes by the name Leah. And it's like, surely it's the other way around. <laughs> and what do you think about this reveal? Do you think it works? Do you think it's... Because I forget that she isn't the sister um, and that, it, it, that it's revealed as like a surprise. And you get that like music sting when she comes down the stairs. What, what was your reaction to that? Good question. Because I didn't see it coming. And... But did you care when it did? <laughs> <laughs> kinda, kinda, yeah, and I, and I think I think that ultimately, more so, I think that in when it when you kind of see what it's driving at with what you learn next, when it happened, I was like, huh, that's interesting, but I didn't see it coming, and I I can't tell if that's because it's like a fairly solid revelation, 
or if they just made no attempt to seed it at all. But they can't, I mean, I suppose they kind of do because she has more insight into Bug than... Yeah. I guess once once we find out that reveal, it makes that earlier comment a little bit more interesting rather than just her being an asshole. which, I mean, you- she, she absolutely is an asshole, and she continues to be an asshole. She doesn't even really get a redemptive arc. We just understand, I believe, that she doesn't die. She doesn't right. die, no. That's, that's I right. mean, that's her redemptive arc, is that she doesn't die. <laughs> oh, and she, I think it's the fact that, like, Bug would have been implicated in the crimes as the killer, but she was there and witnessed that it wasn't him, and so yeah. she's the one that like allows him to sort of get away. Yeah, she 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 kind of exonerates him a bit, doesn't she? I mean, so th- there's that, but like yeah. that's just telling the truth. So. She's still a, she's still an <laughs> asshole. All she does is say, "Yeah, well, my brother didn't kill anyone." Yeah, true. yeah. We we are kind of we are kind of handing out gold medals for baseline human decency here. But you are still right. Like I think that like that's that's the reason why she makes it to the end. I think. Yeah. Um, Tell you what, but yes. Empire's taking a pounding through this film. She's going oh, to God, start yeah. from the ground up again. <laughs> Guess she'll have to retake another year. <laughs> <laughs> She's meant to be like nineteen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So. Yeah, they're brother and sister, but what we find out kind of like, and I think that like the more pressing and the more kind of like important point that we get from this is that the reason that she hates him so much, because he does kind of like, because he goes upstairs and he's like, why do you hate me so much? I've never done anything. I've never done anything to you. And then she comes out of her bedroom and beats the shit out of him. See, again, the violence here when she beats him up is played quite slapsticky. It's so much. This whole section, because when May, like the the mum slash aunt, because mm-hmm. um, that's revealed as well, we we discover that Leia and Bugs' mother was Sarah, who's the woman that was pregnant that died at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you've got May when she's like acting and screaming at Fang's character. It's so like melodramatic. It feels like you're watching like EastEnders. You know what I mean? It's yeah. We've never seen that character behave in a way where you think, oh, she could be that angry. Yeah. It just comes out of nowhere. And then when you add to the fact that like uh, Fang beats up Bug, but not like just shoving him around, she's like beating him up like they're in like a bar fight. She's like it's, punching it's, him, <laughs> kicking him in the balls. Kneeing him in the nose, like it's so much. <laughs> yeah, because uh-huh. I because I remember thinking because when she when she like when she like pinned him up against the wall, I was like, oh right, okay. But yeah, when she like punched him in the stomach and yeah, like kicked him in the face and stuff, I was like, Jesus fucking, can we dial this down a bit? <laughs> By the way, I have to say massive props to Bug for poker facing getting a terrifying child's rocking horse as a birthday present. Oh yeah, and he's like, thanks. <laughs> oh, this is nice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the fact that he has to have the symbolism of that explained to him retrospectively. So he's just, so he's just, he just thinks that it's like a poorly conceived but well intentioned present. Yeah, because because the mum's like, right, you go to your fucking bedroom. And he's like, well, I'm taking my horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a weird moment, but obviously, yeah, we learned the fact that, that that she has given him this rocking horse that Abel made. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose that the I, what this does set up, I suppose, is that they learn, or at least, yeah, Bug learns at this point that Abel is their father, and he was the child that Sarah was pregnant with that they managed to kind of like he was born very prematurely, but they basically managed to rescue him. I refuse to believe that an asshole like Fang held her water about this enormous life-destroying secret about her brother for this long. Yeah, and she does try and explain it, doesn't she? That like, 
I had all this information, but me and May made uh, like a pact that like I would never reveal it if she, what does she do? Like if she never comes into her room <laughs> and, bas- and just leaves her alone, I think, and lets her do whatever the fuck she wants. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose that the, the kind of moment that this sets up is because she still has the dollhouse from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It kind of it lets you have this reconciliation moment between Fang and Bud because they then have this moment where they, in kind of like unison or in solidarity, both smash up their able thing. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's at that point that we kind of pull into this kind of like quite leaden-footed fight sequence and things like that that we've been talking about for a little while, or we've been kind of uh, we've been kind of foreshadowing. Yeah, just before that, we get Penelope's letter, which. Even this time, I was like, wait, Penelope wrote a letter? And it's, she wrote a letter for Bug, which Fang intercepted. Mm-hmm. And then Bug is able to get, I think, from Brittany's bag, because there's a whole like phone dropped in the bag, blah, 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 kind of thing. And he reads the letter. And this is when Alex pops in through the window for like the first of 70 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he and does he, a lot of zigzagging. So he, he he reads this letter from Penelope, which we never hear, but then he explains to Alex that basically Penelope predicted that this would be the year that the Ripper would return. And there's one of two options, which is he survived and has come back because one equals six and seven and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, <laughs> so he's come back to kill them or he died and his soul inhabited one of the seven and one of the seven is killing them off one by one, but they don't know which one it is, which on paper sounds like the coolest thing if more of them were alive at this point. You know what I mean? We could have some like the thing tension of like, who's the, who's the, the bad guy, but we never get that because we just get talking between Alex and Bug. And also I feel like if you're building up this kind of supernatural possibility and, uh, I guess option number two, it kind of makes option number one feel a bit stupid to think that this famous killer, right, who's been lurking, planning for sixteen years, is going to return to kill seven teenagers who just so happened to be born on the day because that r- renders the supernatural element kind of moot. So, what would be his motivation for killing kids? Yeah, mm. exactly. Like. Oh, so seven kids just happened to be born premature the night he died, and there's no supernatural element. Okay, that's weird. Yeah, uh, it, it <laughs> Which, it, yeah like in a suburb that I would say has a population of around thirty. <laughs> <laughs> but he surely got better people to kill when he comes back than necessarily these high school kids. Oh yeah, surely he's got more of a gripe with Patterson. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, yeah, go after Frank Grillo. Yeah, but I think it's the idea that. But again, it still doesn't work if it's like logical, but it's the idea that Abel Plenkoff had seven personalities or seven different souls within him. And each of those souls came together to expose the Ripper. And so the Ripper wants revenge, but he, but those souls don't exist in his body anymore. They jumped into the seven kids. And so he has to kill each one of the kids to get revenge effectively. So that would be his motivation, but mm-hmm. it's still sort of like, we're leaning into that sort of soul element. So yeah, if he is just coming back to kill random kids, it it doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Alex comes back. He theorizes at this point about the Ripper's soul hopping into a body of the seven and kind of like forcing them to kill the others. That's like, that gets the most airspace here. We also learned at this point that while Alex has been away, he's killed his stepdad. Just casually. That was Alex's big mistake, killing his stepdad. Killing his stepdad. Yeah. 
if he'd just done all his killing in that house, he could potentially have palmed that off. The thing is, I, I, like, could we not have seen that happen? Why do we have to get told that? That's like an exciting moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, de- yeah. the death of an absolute asshole character. We, we, we love seeing that. Yeah, give us that catharsis. Yeah, don't don't explain it to us afterwards. Because there's so much explaining. Yeah, but but see, when he when he was like, oh, I like I punched him, uh, but like he fell down the stairs and he broke his neck. I was like, that sounds awesome. Show it to yeah. me. Can I see that? That'd be yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> Alex also at this point correctly asserts that it's not okay for everybody to be killing each other all the time. Agree. Fair. Agree. Um, but yeah, Bug has a vision of Penelope at this point. Uh, a very dead Penelope, you know, like sp- sporting the throat wound. But yeah, the vengeance knife has found its way into his bathroom sink. He goes downstairs with the killer's knife in his hand, which is an awkward moment for uh, Patterson to show up. Yes. Doesn't look good. But yeah, we go back to him kind of talking about how this miracle baby kind of, um, yeah, when Bug was born, kind of... It was like the one this... good thing, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, kind of like it was It was the silver lining to this very, very ominous cloud that lifted everyone's spirits at the time and that kind of thing and helped everybody go through it collectively as a community, I guess. It's talk like that that makes it a little bit clearer as to why Fang's such a dick because what about her? Like, she survived it as well. And she was actually there. Yeah. Like, he survived, but he was an unborn baby. She was actually there witnessing all this like murder and terror happen. And yeah. yeah, so that does make sense actually. And he's he's the golden boy and she's the one that's like held back at school and you know isn't getting the support that she needs. Yeah, actually like I hadn't I hadn't really considered the actual mechanics of that and it does track fairly convincingly, I think. Again, there's so much stuff in this. There's so it's so dense and there's so much talking and so much that you miss really important things. And I genuinely do think the ideas of this film are so fucking excellent and really interesting, but they're just not told in the most effective way they could be. Agree. I would be very interested to know what the kind of like timeline and the kind of meat was of the reshoots. I'd be really interested to know what elements got downplayed and which elements got amplified and stuff like that. I'd be really curious to know what this looked like before that happened. Yeah, me too. I've seen some extra scenes on the DVD. These are all scenes that were cut and they're quite long. There's a full kind of almost like 10, 15 minute scene of like extra exposition where Bug does look through Fang's sort of like pack of information that she kept while she sort of like explains in voiceover or whatever. And it kind of doesn't help. It sort of just overcomplicates things. <laughs> okay. And I also was able to track down the script. Um, so this this film was originally titled 25-8, which okay. means we would normally say 24-7. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what this obviously means is 25 hours a day, eight days a week, which is... <laughs> <laughs> There, there. There's a line at the end of the film in a, in a cut scene, basically, where Bug has all the souls, including the Ripper, inside of him, and he says, "You may be trying to get out twenty four seven, but the rest of us are going to be watching you twenty five eight. And I think that's sort of what it's like that extra bit of attention and care that you need to put onto something. It's nice in theory. It's a terrible title. My soul to takes a much better title, but yes. the script is very long. That opening scene that is about eight minutes, the sort of prelude before the 16 years later, doesn't take place at the beginning. 
it takes place all, almost in the middle and it's like 30 pages long jesus christ it's like 30 minutes it's like a full act of a movie good lord and then you get i don't think you get to like the bathroom scene and the the stuff at the school that's like 70 minutes in like it's ri- the structure is all over the place so wow. actually i kind of feel like maybe the edits helped i hate to say it but okay you know this has streamlined a lot of stuff now that the version i've seen might be a draft that was then edited and edited but by the looks of it a lot of the stuff stayed it was just really trimmed down um i saw you putting a feeler out on uh on twitter trying to track down the script uh earlier on uh this week and i didn't want to give i didn't want to comment and give the game away that that was the film that you'd chosen but at the same time i was like that's the level of preparation i like to see (laughs) (laughs) the commitment what you're saying is then that well, when I, when I was kind of thinking that the stuff that maybe got left out would have simplified the mythology, it's just more of it that muddies There's the water. There's just more of more. it, yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I see. Um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, Aunt Mom is dead. Sure, Frank Grilly's um, dead. Yeah, which yeah. they do. There is a nice moment where he, sorry, just before where he's like, um, you're not my mother, but you are my mom and that you're sort of stuck with. Which is like, oh, we get like a nice cute moment between Bug and his non-mom, but sort of like pseudo-mom before she dies. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, like, I, I, actually, we'll get to it. But a, a couple of the kind of like death moments kind of land quite nicely in terms of yeah. like like a nicely pitched level of sentimentality. There's another one coming up that I think is quite good in that way. But yeah, there is a very very underlit fight sequence here between Bug and the Ripper. Yeah, uh, it does nothing for me. I think it, I think it would do more for me if I could see a little more of it because, like you say, George, I think that like the the kind of like the props and really kind of like interactive and kinetic fight sequences and stuff like that are things that do work. And actually, when you said that, Scream Four was one of the ones that came to mind. Oh yeah, just um, smashing shit and like falling down, and it's great. It would have been like yeah, it would have been good to like l- like physically see more of this kind of in the moment. And if there um, was less cackling. <laughs> yeah but also just that kind of like that really silly thing where like the ripper gets the upper hand and postpones killing bug because he's startled by a noise upstairs because Um, he wanted to kill him last (laughs) (laughs) yeah like like, which is like um but i think that like not killing him when he had the chance is like a commitment to that like that theater of that that i would say kind of veers into negligence yeah but we like jerome has been attacked off camera we discovered him upstairs after bug uh gets away yeah the, the blind kids found his way into the into the house into the cupboard uh, i was surprised to see him there why 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 <laughs> i was surprised to see him there or why is he here at all just jerome's character the one black kid out of the seven has the least to do he's yeah. also blind and it has absolutely no bearing on the story no. Like, make him the lead. That's He's really interesting. Wildly underdeveloped, particularly, like, in in relation to the other six. Like, because we know, like, a decent whack of what they're all like as people, really. Yeah. Um. Even, like, with the exception of Jay, I guess, because he dies so early. But, like, um, but yeah, with the other five, it's like, we've got, like, by the time they die, I mean, whether you like them or not, or whether you're supposed to like them or not, you at least know. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know anything about Jerome. When I see Jerome coming out of Bug's cupboard in his bedroom covered in blood, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. What the hell is he doing there? <laughs> it's, it's just, that's one of the most preposterous parts of this final kind of <laughs> confrontation. And there's a few of them in there. Yeah. But like I said, Jerome has done enough to buy Bug some time. Uh, having served his purpose, Jerome then dutifully dies. Yeah, he's afforded a warrior's death. <laughs> 
Alex returns at this point and has some wild theories to throw around. He suggests that Bog has inherited his father's schizophrenia and disassociative identity disorder and that he has killed everyone without realizing it, which at this point Bog kind of counteracts that with saying that it's the souls that are a part of him. But Alex also, in kind of like what we realize is kind of like desperation for kind of like throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks with Bug, he also posits that uh, Bug has turned out to be a serial killer because he didn't get enough oxygen at birth. Yeah, like when did you become a doctor, Alex? Like what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, oh, that, that shit can make you crazy. It's like, can it? Oh, can it, Dr. Alex? Okay, fine. <laughs> but then Alex starts talking in like unfamiliar voices and it's just very this film gives a lot of mixed messages and mixed ideas and again even here at this point i don't think it knows really which side of the supernatural fence it's willing to stay on no i think it's trying to leave it somewhat ambiguous because i was listening to uh, someone did like a youtube uh like review of this film and they they spoke about how alex kind of gives off not to get too heavy, but Alex gives off like Columbine vibes in the sense of like, he's that kind of like put upon um, sort of like middle-class white boy that just wants to like, he's really disenfranchised and wants to kill a load of people that, Uh you know, that's a real oversimplification, but he, he kind of has that impression and you kind of sense in this scene that he's almost trying to like drag bug along with him. And so it's like, is he actually possessed by the soul of the Ripper? And that's the twist or he's sort of using that as a way to sort of justify his own sort of like violent intentions. I don't know if it is that that isn't given enough time or plot or development and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of icky if that's true so i kind of do want to lean more to the fact like nah he was possessed by the soul of a killer it's also kind of the relationship <laughs> that billy and Stu had in scream yeah there's so much this is the moment this is the part of the film that is okay he now he's like taking from scream here we've had lots of elm street with the dreams and like the surreal moments we've had deadly blessing with the you know the christianity kind of elements um, we get shocker, I think, in this as well, just in the way that it's it feels like lots of finales all kind of like played one after the other. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we get Scream because we've had the phone call and then we get this kind of like Billy and Stu moment at the end. So he's like taking all these elements from films he's already made. Yeah. Mm. I see that. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have connected the dots to Shocker, but now you say it in the kind of like, which ending do you want? All yeah. of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get yeah, away the, the, the scream comparison in the phone calls is unavoidable like it, yeah it's uh what's your favorite north american bird of prey <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah alex kind of rages at some of the accusations that are um kind of getting thrown around here because once bug twigs he puts it together like in the same way that like Columbo talks through, <laughs> he um, absolutely does. It's a pure and, um, well, because he's like, but if you did that when you left, you could like, it's like, oh, you had enough time to get back, and you could have done the killing while uh, <laughs> Fang was out in the car, and you get like a montage that accompanies it all. And I was like, Jesus, like it's like the end of like fucking Ocean's Eleven or something. <laughs> and it's like there's ten minutes left. Like, why are you still talking? <laughs> <laughs> Just chit chatting away. Yeah, um, take the biggest knife in the house. Which, Mitch, you know what I'm going to say here. I've, I've, I've raged about this many a time. No one needs a knife that big in their fucking house. I'm sorry. Not even a restaurant kitchen needs a knife that big. It's silly. It's one step away from a sword. That's true. I think that if I ever walked into anyone's kitchen and they had a knife that size in their knife rack, I'd be like, 
I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. What you what you what you got there? What you but using I, that for on a daily basis? I do love the line. It might be cheesy, but I love it. The the kind of stabbing and the where's the biggest knife in the kitchen where it needs to be. I I I, I, like, I, I that. like that. Oh yeah, that's good. I don't yeah, have a yeah, problem yeah. with that. No, no, not at all. A fight ensues here. Uh, ultimately, Bug gets the better of him. Alex, um, well, before I guess before this happens, Alex suggests that they kill Fang and pin the murders on Jerome. That's just not on. <laughs> They'll have to believe that. It hangs together so perfectly. And I don't want to, like, you know, be ableist in any way and say that, like, a blind person couldn't commit, you know, look at, serial yeah, of killings. Of course, look at, look at Don't Breathe. Exactly. But at yeah. the same time, what are you thinking? This is not possible. <laughs> no, I think that, like, uh, also, like, I don't think that it's necessarily, you know, I don't think that it's, like, the airtight alibi that he's making out to be. Like, I think no, they cause... went outside and, like, told, like as the police arrived on the, street, um, on the scene, and they're like, look, I know what this looks like, but it wasn't us. It was the blind dead body upstairs. That was at the church with, like, everybody the whole time. Yeah. Like, as... he was like, I was at the church and came here. <laughs> Quite clearly the nicest, most innocent, lovely character in the whole fucking film. Yeah. For sure. But Bug eventually kills Alex in this struggle. And this is what I was talking about, like when um because obviously like the Ripper kind of like vacates Alex at this point, and they just have this moment where they just are just friends again yeah. as uh, as Alex dies. And I think that that's pitched quite well. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I do yeah. like that moment where he's kind of like, I thought that guy would never leave, which is like, oh, that that kind of makes it go, oh maybe alex the whole time the person that we were seeing maybe wasn't fully alex which also could true, potentially yeah. justify some of his bad behavior potentially yeah but uh, yeah i think i think that kind of like that would have been a moment that would have been really easy to fumble and um, yeah. and i think it, i think it just about gets there but yeah it's at this point that we realize that um fang has gone outside or leah has gone outside and told the truth and bug is emerging as kind of like this reluctant hero from this awful thing so i guess like fair play to leah here actually for uh setting up setting him up for being the medical child again yeah she's just like it's just self-sabotage really isn't it (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna i was gonna say it was a redemptive arc but yes it could also be (laughs) self-sabotage she's just that broken (laughs) yeah exactly but But, um, so this is what i think is the like almost the tact on happy ending that the studio wanted sure because there are i think two alternate endings on the dvd and both of them one of them is nuts so both of them implicate bug as the villain so uh, it, it was obviously Alex, but like the cops are going to come and arrest him. And so it's like the, the version I said before where it's like the 25-8. So he's got the ripper inside of him and the cops are going to get him and all of that. So that's one. And then we get a really lovely scene of Bug. He's walking, yeah, he's walking with Alex and Jerome and then one by one, the kids sort of join, join them and he's walking with all seven of them and then kind of stand by me style. They like fade away. And and you're just sort of left with um, Bug. I quite like that. It's a bit of a weird ending, but I like the scene individually. Mm -hmm. The second ending... (laughs) Is this the Kaiser Soze ending where Jerome (laughs) walks away and throws his blind stick away into the bushes and just... (laughs) If only it were so. No, the second alternate ending, Bug does his kind of thing and, you know, he's like, they're going to implicate me, da-da-da-da-da. Opens the door to his bedroom. Fang is there. She pulls a gun. <laughs> it cuts to black and you hear a gunshot. Yes. <laughs> and she's like point blank pointing it at his face. 
so yes. like, she blew his head off. <laughs> yes, wow. of, of, of the three, I want that one. It's so weird. <laughs> that, that's like, like that, oh man, that feels so incredibly trashy and fun. Right? And like yeah, completely goes against like the little moments we've had with <laughs> Fang towards the end where she's like, I'm going to give that guy a 10. Like, all of this stuff. Give him 20. Like, all that kind of dialogue where they're kind of acting like siblings. And then she's like, nah, I've got a gun. I'm going to kill yeah, you. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it, would, it would have walked back a lot of the redemptive shit that we're trying to get her to do in the yeah, last like, exactly. 20 minutes. Wouldn't it? Yeah, but, um, but on that note, we are done on uh, My Soul to Take. Andy, now you did mention that you kind of had a similar level of disdain for this after a second watch. After this conversation, where are you? It hasn't really changed anything dramatically for me i'm not going to sit here in good faith and and tell people i think that they necessarily need to watch my soul to take i, I don't even know if it's one for craven completists i just think it doesn't know what it is and i don't know how, again i don't know how much of that is kind of as a result of bad test audiences and stuff like that i I just think it's a mishmash of ideas that never kind of cohesively gels into a, a film that works for me I think that the performances are largely fine. I like that he chose to use actors that pretty much look age-appropriate. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, it's just not even in the top, like, 70% of Wes Craven films for me. It's pretty low down. And I'm not a massive fan, as we know, I'm not a massive fan of Scream 4, but it's a damn sight better a film than than this while we're talking about casting choices as well by the way see the lead the character of bug that was originally slated to go to uh, dennis hopper's son yeah uh, henry hopper who had to bail on it because he got glandular fever Brilliant. and that was like a last it was like it was like a last minute kind of switchery for the character for the actually we ended up getting i think max Stereo's fine in it i think he's fine yeah yeah i, I, th- th- I, I think he's fine i think he's got a harder job to do than he's maybe capable of at the time mm-hmm. It's. I think he's. Uh, there's a lot asked of him, like doing all those voices and, you know, playing a character that is a lot younger mentally than maybe he was age-wise, and uh-huh. pulling that off. So I think he's fine, but I appreciate how hard the role is and mm. how difficult it is to sell without it being funny or feel forced. So I think yeah, he does a good job for what is expected of him. Yeah, I I think that that's a spot on kind of assessment of what I think about his performance in this as well. I think that he is like doing pretty solid work, and the parts that don't really convince are the parts that I think that are kind of like the most demanding performance wise, and he just doesn't quite hit those extremes. But I think that a lot of the stuff that he does the rest of the time is pretty is pretty decent. I overall, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't nuts about this, but I I I would say that I'm a fair bit more positive about it than than you are, Andy. Like I would say that I would say that Wes Craven completely should watch it. I think that it's interesting where it sits on the timeline, like that we kind of battle straight out with this into Scream Four, where you, when so much of this lifts stuff from Scream kind of wholesale. So it's, it's like I think that that is kind of that's kind of curious to me, but I think that it deserves kind of some points and some commendation for having these kind of like quite interesting ideas at its core that I think that are probably a shade more interesting and a little bit more inventive than kind of like your average slasher setup. I think that the mythology of this is quite cool. It's a shame that uh, the execution doesn't necessarily kind of give it its due, but Mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely, there's, there's some interesting ideas at the core of this and it's like, it's, it's kind of a curiosity of a film. And like I say, I I would be like, I want to know more about the route to us getting the film we got 
with this, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the film is, I think Wes Craven kind of put his heart and soul into it um, for better or worse. And there may have been tampering, but there's, there's so much of him. And I think the him that we don't really see, like, I think there's a lot of Wes, the actual person in this film, sure. more than Wes, the horror maker. I think he's a bit bored with all the horror stuff and didn't quite want to make that movie. And if you look at Wes Craven's sort of filmography, a lot of times the with the the, the films that don't work, that it's because he doesn't execute the idea, but the idea is always fascinating and is always rooted in like a really intelligent sort of context. And I also like it because there weren't very many original slasher movies at the time. Like this was a whole era coming up to the end of like the remake boom mm -hmm. and the torture porn era. And it was just nice to have like a teen slasher, which has grander aspirations than I think it meets um, with some really interesting themes and ideas. And if this was made today, it, I think it would be like a, a TV series on Netflix, like, and I'd, I'd like, I'd eat it up. I think I'd really like it if it was, they were able to expand on every single idea and every single character, because I think it has that amount yeah. of um, like material. It's just like in a 90 minute film, there isn't enough time to explore that. Yeah, far it, be it from me, Mitch, to uh, jump on your bandwagon and thinking that everything should be a 10 part Netflix miniseries. Uh, I <laughs> would be similar to you josh i'd be all for seeing this expanded and actually allowing the interesting ideas at, at the core of it to, to breathe a little bit because it's just all it's just all squashed it's just crushed yeah. under the weight of time constraint yeah i think that um i think that this is one of the because it's amazing how often uh that's kind of one of the points we land on at the end of these conversations where it's like we kind of think that it's like there's some good ideas in here if anything it's overstuffed with ideas and what this needs is either to slim it down so the film is less crowded or widen out and give it all room to breathe with as much time as it needs. And I think that's probably true here. And just execute it without, you know, being converted to 3D with a load of CGI blood and, you know, just a load of ADR that doesn't need to be there. You know, a killer that talks, you know, you don't need to create a new Freddy, like do something different. Yeah. Um, and I think there was probably some like, no, he has to talk and we have to do this, that and the other because that's what you've done before. And you can almost it, feel craving like fighting that. It does that. feel like that, actually. It feels like, well, you made Scream and that was massively successful. So we'll do that exact same thing again to the point where I read that part of the publicity tour on this was that they faked a st or they staged a stabbing in a cinema. Um, Oof, no, that's awful. Yeah, they staged a stabbing in the cinema and then later had to come out and say, oh, it was a publicity stunt, which again just feels like the start of Scream 2. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my. oh like, wow. It's as if Rogue Pictures were just like, this is really just an extension of Wes Craven's previous work. Let's just lean right, like, really hard into that. That's interesting. I didn't know that. No, me neither. That's really kind of disturbing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's poor, it feels poor taste to me. Yeah, yeah 100%. I get, I, I get the impression that you wouldn't get away with that now. Uh, Josh, before we wrap up, I just want to talk about um, a couple of things that uh, you've been working on or that you've been involved in over the last little while. Now, we did mention at the top of the show that you most recently were in uh, the Deku original series, So Far So Close, which was, I believe, created and written by one of our previous guests, uh, Michael Verratti. Yes. It was. Has Michael been on the show? That's awesome. He has. He, yeah, yeah. He did Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, oh yes, of course. <laughs> I think that's one of his uh, one of his faves, isn't it? It is. Um, it is. 
Yeah, so I did this project. I basically I um flashing back to 2018, I lived in Vancouver for a year. And okay. while I was out there, I uh, you know, with my collaborator shot a short film called The Latent Image, which you can also find on Deku or through Amazon Prime. But while we were there, because it's sort of, you know, West Coast, we were able to fly to LA and that's where we met Michael, became very good friends, and uh he asked me to just play this really small role in the first episode. Um but it's a great series. It deals with loads of different stories and they were all shot completely um, remotely. So I was in London and Michael directed me via Zoom while I was holding my phone and basically filming myself. Um, nice, that's cool. So it's it's really smart. It's almost like an anthology series. So each episode deals with sort of different types of relationships, uh, but they all sort of there's there's some interconnections going on and there is there's like a there's a horror episode as well so he doesn't stray too far from his horror roots <laughs> sure sure that's that's cool and you did mention there um uh, the latent image as well uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so the the latent image is a uh, queer short thriller um it's a two-hander it's me and another actor i also co-wrote the script and co-produced it okay um and i'd sort of describe it as maybe a little bit like misery meets i don't know i don't know what else but it's uh, <laughs> it's it's like an an isolated thriller it's sort of like a be careful what you wish for narrative right. and okay. sort of demonstrates the sort of the dangerous situations that gay men can often put themselves into because of sort of their sexuality you know it's right. they're not so freely able to go and sleep with who they want to um so maybe have to do it in secret or whatever and it sort of deals with that while the the main character that I play is trying to finish his novel in this isolated cabin in the woods and a strange man appears uh, uh, that may or may not be a work of fiction. Ooh. So um, it was very fun and fingers crossed because of COVID, we've had to postpone and postpone, but mm -hmm. we actually, we're turning it into a feature. Nice, um, nice. Which I'm really excited about. Uh, we were supposed to shoot it in the summer of uh, 2020 in vancouver again at the same location uh and unfortunately that fell through so we pushed it back to march of this year but again we've had to push it back so we're gonna we're gonna give it a go at the top of, of 2022 <laughs> okay yeah like you you kind of you you got a hope that you're kind of yeah. going to be in the clear by then to yeah get these and i think again. if i think we were just like if we're going to do it we want to do it right we don't want to have to compromise the sure. story or the locations or whatever just because we wanted to get out quick you know sure and we wanted to keep everyone as safe as possible so yeah Absolutely. fingers crossed yeah and um and you said that the the short um for the latent image you said that's uh deku in amazon prime right it is yeah so through amazon prime you can you know how you can like watch things on other channels yeah. yeah um and deku does a free trial so if you don't want to subscribe to deku you can do their free trial through amazon prime or you can check it out on deku they've got loads of really cool content um, there's other stuff from Michael on there, Michael Verratti. There's his short film, A Halloween Trick. There's uh, there's another one called Poltergeist, which um, his uh, producing partner made. So there's, yeah, there's loads of really good stuff on there. So if you do your trial, you can cram a lot into a short space of time. <laughs> cool. The other thing I was going to touch on was Return to Erie, Indiana. Yes. Yeah, the podcast. So a uh, former guest of yours, Becky Dark, who did yep. the Shocker yes. episode, is my co-host. 
and together we go through the entire 19 episodes of the original series. For those of you that don't know what Eerie Indiana is, it was like a short-lived 90s television series aimed for kids to a degree, but it really like engages with adults as well. Um, It's sort of like the X-Files or Twin Peaks, but for kids, it's like a different mystery each week, all set in like very sort of Lynchian suburbs. And Joe Dante was sort of an executive producer, creative consultant. And if you listen to the podcast, we actually got to interview him. So we... We so chat cool. to Joe Dante. It's really awesome. That's huge yeah. for me. I'm a, I'm a big Joe Dante guy. Mitch knows that. Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. So, uh, yeah, so uh, anything else you want to give a little bit of uh, airspace to you before we wrap up? No, I think, that, you know, that's about it. Just check out those things if you can. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and it's my name, at Joshua Tonks, T-O-N-K-S. That was just what I was about to ask. Uh, Josh, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Yeah, man, thank um, you. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. So Andy, I would say that despite the fact that we kind of generally talk me up as being the sunshine kid, it just occurs to me that we hardly ever get to the end of these conversations and you come up that negative on a film. I actually don't remember the last time uh, once we had finished a discussion where I was like, still don't like it. It's probably something I picked. Yeah, I mean, I think the nature of the, but yeah, probably it was probably something like, I don't know, fucking open windows or something. Um, God, you yeah, like you and I had to write. Yeah, had to you, kind you, of. Uh, and you were like, nah, I don't fucking like it either. Um, yeah, I, I, I like you talked me around in that episode. Yeah, but like, yeah, I'm not. I think the nature of the films that people tend to bring on are so kind of in my wheelhouse and kind of play to the my taste so so much that it's generally quite hard for me to come out of one of these kind of negative because for the most part I've seen things before. If I haven't, and like in the case of things like Teen Witch. I was so won over and charmed by it that it was impossible to come out of it negatively. So, yeah, I think for the most part, I probably have been the most kind of consistently positive. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's true. Like I say, I know that I, like, I've got the reputation for being the kind of like sunny disposition guy, but I would say that you're the one that comes up the most pro the most often in, this, mm. in the main episodes. I mean, don't get me wrong. You are far and away the, the cheerier of us two chappies. Um, <laughs> I suppose it's true. That's just that's just the films we do. I guess so. I suppose that's true. But big thank you to Joshua Tonks for joining us this week and pulling Andy out of his comfort zone. Mm, very much so. Yeah, and joining us to talk my soul to take. So we're done once again. Yep, just like that. We're just setting these up and knocking them down now. Yeah, yeah. Like like peek behind the curtain. Got our next six episodes lined up. That's uh, unheard of, and that is a fact. We have never yep. been that far ahead of the game, ever. Yep, F- feeling pretty good about it, i got to say. However, more immediately than that, we will, of course, be back on Monday with Minisode 149. Approaching the milestone 150. Yeah, these milestones, they just keep, just keep racking them up. Um, 300 recordings, Minisode 150. But yeah, we'll be doing all the usual stuff on there. We'll be talking about what we've been watching. I've got a couple of things already that I want to get into. Me too. Good and bad. Nature will be going wild. Uh, you got anything lined up for that? Uh, I do, I do, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bringing this to an end soon. Okay, cool. Okay, I, I would say, I would say you're probably that's kind of like optimal side quest length. I would say that like slapping a slapping an end point on that at this point is probably not too bad a shout. Mm, I'm, I'm willing to take some suggestions so I go out like in a blaze of glory on this side quest. 
Yeah, good point, actually. Yeah, let's get some recommendations in and uh, let's try and kind of lift the jet. Let's pull the average up. Yeah, I want either uh, want something that's incredible, like Jalika 2 levels of incredible, or something that is so bad, worse than Sharkinsaw Women's Prison Massacre. Basically, either end of the spectrum. Right, you've heard the man. You know what you have to do. If you want to get in touch with suggestions for that or to get in touch about anything else, there's loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us at Strong Violent PC. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker, and you can email Scenes at gmail.com. And patrons, 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 we love you very much. As always, thank you for dipping into your pockets. Keep your eyes on the feeds because there's more on the way. Yep, got some good plans this month. However, we are back this Monday before any of that with another mini So Join us for that if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chats. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.